everybody. Thank you for coming along to this talk. For those of you who don't know me, I'm an economist, but I work uh, across economics and politics, and most of my research is on comparative labor immigration policies around the world. And uh, most of my research is really motivated by specific policy questions or policy dilemmas. I'm also a member of the UK's Migration Advisory Committee, but today I'm speaking in a personal capacity and not in any way on behalf of the, of the MAC. Um, I'm talking about the economics of politics uh, of migrant rights around the world, and uh, this research is based on a new book, The Price of Rights, Regulating International Labor Migration, which has just come out with uh, Princeton University Press. And since uh, this is a 20-minute talk, I'm going to give the main argument right at the beginning and then go back to explain how I've arrived at one of the main conclusions and themes. So the book speaks to debates about the global governance of international labor migration and migrant rights, but it also has, I hope, some interesting important implications for national debates about how to regulate immigration and the rights of migrant workers. And basically what I'm trying to do with the book is bring together at least two debates that are mostly conducted fairly separately and in isolation. So on the one hand, we have a lot of development economists and a lot of people who are interested in um, reducing poverty, arguing that one of the most effective strategies for raising the incomes of workers in poor countries is to give them the opportunity to work in high-income countries. So migration, in particularly more low-skilled labor migration, which is currently very restricted, is, according to the World Bank, one of the most effective strategies for raising the incomes of workers and their families. And under certain circumstances, more migration might also be very good for development of countries of origin. So the World Bank has been arguing for quite some time now um, that high-income countries should open up their labor immigration policies to admitting more migrant workers, especially low-skilled migrant workers. Now, at the same time, of course, we have a lot of people um, at UN agencies and at migrant rights, um, uh, rights-based agencies, migrant rights advocates, arguing that there should be better protection of migrant workers' rights and there should be really quality of rights for migrant workers, equality with citizens. And uh, what the book basically argues is that, in practice, you cannot always have both more migration and more equality of rights. From a global justice point of view, I argue that it is indeed desirable to have both. More migration is good for migrant incomes and uh, for the families, and obviously most of us or all of us believe in greater equality of rights. But in practice, when you look at the labor immigration policies of high-income countries, uh, as I've done in this book, you can see a trade-off in these policies between access and rights or between openness and rights. The countries that are more open to admitting migrant workers are also the countries that place greater restrictions on migrant rights. Uh, conversely, the countries that are um, insisting on equality of rights or that provide comprehensive protection, such as Sweden and, for example, other Scandinavian countries, typically admit uh, relatively small numbers. So I think that, that trade-off between openness and rights uh, is important. I think it needs to be discussed much more than it has been so far at, at global level. And it raises, of course, a host of difficult but very important ethical questions. Uh, most importantly, the key question is, should we ever accept 
restrictions of rights in order to encourage high-income countries to admit more migrant workers. Um, and you know, this is a normative question. Different people will have very different views on it. It's important to have this debate. So far, international organizations, in particular the International Labour Organization, um, have refused to talk about these issues, but I think it's important. So that's, that's, that's the key, key argument. Uh, but let me go back to the um, beginning, the starting point. So the research is really motivated by this chart, uh, which uh, many of you will be very familiar with. Uh, it shows you the ratifica ratifications of major international human rights treaties by member states of the United Nations over time. And um, you know, as many of you know, we've had quite a few general human rights treaties and one specific treaty in 1990 on the rights of migrant workers. And as you can see, the Migrant Workers Convention 1990 is by far the least ratified treaty over time. Fewer than 50 countries have ratified it. So the same countries that ratify the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, Civil and Political Rights, the same countries that ratified general conventions have not ratified the Migrant Worker Convention, when in fact the Migrant Worker Convention does not include many new rights. It basically just affirms the fact that these general conventions also apply to, to migrant workers. So it's very hard to deny that after 25 years, the 1990 UN Convention has not been very effective in protecting migrant workers in practice. The countries that have ratified it are mainly sending countries. And interestingly, among the countries that have ratified it, if you look at their human rights records, not all of them are very good. Uh, if you look at freedom house indices, for example, some of these countries that have ratified do not have very good human rights records themselves. Now, the response of UN agencies and migrant rights advocates uh, to this chart has traditionally been to, to say we need to have more campaigning uh, uh, for ratification and to argue that migrant rights are human rights. And as such, they have an intrinsic value. And we must keep pointing out uh, to nation states that they must respect rights because they have migrant rights because they have intrinsic value as human rights. Now, the starting point of my book is that in addition to this intrinsic value uh, that migrant rights have, migrant rights also play a critical instrumental role in shaping the effects of international labor migration for the host country, for migrants, and for sending countries. So let me give you an example. For example, um, whether or not migrants enjoy the free choice of employment in the host country or are limited to a sector or even employer has an important impact on the wages they earn and thus on remittances and thus on household incomes. Um, whether or not migrants are given the right to access the welfare state obviously has an important <coughs> impact on the fiscal effects of immigration in the host country. So what I'm saying is that because rights have consequences, costs and benefits, which vary across different rights and between the short and long run, because rights have impact, in practice, restrictions of migrant rights are instruments of labor immigration policy. So when, when we think about labor immigration policy, I'm suggesting there are three fundamental policy decisions that all countries must make. The, the first question is, how do you regulate the scale of immigration, the scale of labor immigration? How do you regulate numbers coming in? Do you have a quota or do you not have a quota? How much power do you give employers and so on? The second question is about selection. How do you select? Do you focus on only high-skilled workers um, or do you also admit large numbers of low-skilled workers? And the third question, critically, I think, is what rights do you give migrants, migrant workers after admission? 
So do you admit them on temporary or permanent basis? Do you give them access to the welfare state? Do you give them the right to family reunion and so on? And these three decisions, I argue, are made simultaneously by policymakers when they design a labor migration program for admitting migrant workers. So what I'm interested in the book is to find out, well, how do countries regulate numbers, selection, and rights in practice? And most importantly, what's the relationship between these three policy parameters? What's the relationship between skills, selection, and rights, and openness, and what's the relationship between uh, admission and, and rights after admission? Um, I am trying in the book to, to separate kind of hard-nosed questions of political economy from normative questions. So most of the book is trying to analyze what is happening in practice. When you look at labor immigration programs around the world, how are countries regulating immigration practice, and how and why do my, uh, countries restrict the rights of migrant workers? What are the considerations? There's a separate chapter then on the ethics of it, on the normative question, which I raised at the beginning of the talk. Given this reality that we find, what should we make of it? What's the response? What's the normative response? And I do have my own normative views, uh, which I'll um, share with you uh, at the end of this talk. But what I'm saying is that even if you disagree with my personal normative take on this challenge, I hope you'll still find the rest of the uh, book interesting, which is about the, the reality of policymaking um, around the world. So um, I'm focusing on labor immigration policy defined as policies for admitting migrants as workers. So there's a lot of other policies, family migration policies, student policies that bring in migrants who might end up in the labor market as workers. I'm not concerned about those. I'm concerned about policies that are, primary, that are designed specifically to bring in migrants as workers. Okay? Um, now, I suggest, without going into detail, that when you ask yourself, how can you expect high-income countries to regulate openness, selection, rights. I think you, you, can, you can come up with these three hypotheses based on just theoretical conceptual thinking and based on the literature. If high-income countries design immigration policy in the national interest, i.e. to benefit existing residents, and um, again, the book talks about different ways of conceptualizing that, you can expect high-income countries, I argue, to be more open to skilled and low-skilled migrant workers, to give skilled migrant workers more rights than low-skilled migrant workers, and to implement policies that are characterized by this trade-off between openness and rights. And the trade-off arises primarily because some rights, some rights, not all rights, create net costs in the short run. Um, in the short run. So for example, uh, giving low-skilled migrant workers, new low-skilled migrant workers, immediate access to social housing might create some fiscal costs, net costs in the short run. Now whenever a right creates a cost, the, the openness to admitting migrant workers I argue, will critically depend on the extent to which countries can restrict this right. Okay? So this is just kind of a, an expectation. And a lot of the empirical analysis in the book is about trying to find out whether this is actually true. So in order to, to um, test these expectations, um, I had to uh, design two separate indices, new measures. One, one measure tries to capture the openness of labor immigration programs to admitting migrant workers. And the second uh, index tries to measure the rights, the legal rights that migrant workers are given after admission. Okay, because there's no data on these issues, I had to, to create my own data sets. My unit of analysis are labor immigration programs in high-income countries, not countries as a whole. Why? Because 
almost all countries in the world have more than one labor immigration program for admitting migrants with different skill levels. And the way openness and rights are regulated varies significantly across skill level. Sweden is exceptional at the moment in that it only has one program, the labor immigration program, for bringing in migrants of all skill levels. But most other countries have multiple programs. The UK has tier one, tier two, um, for bringing in non-EU workers. The US has at least five or six different, different programs. So um, when I'm talking about rights, I'm, talking, I'm measuring legal rights, <coughs> so rights on paper, not rights in practice. So rights in practice could be there exceed or be less than the rights on, on, on paper. So for example, in a country you might say, the labor law might say that rights, migrant workers enjoy a particular right, for example the right to join trade unions, but in practice migrant rights might not be given the right. Okay? But it can also go the other way. Um, the, the government might um, stipulate in some countries that it does not want migrants to access certain health services, but in practice when the migrant shows up at the hospital, <coughs> the doctor does not refuse. So, you know, my, my rights in practice can be uh, less or more than rights on, on paper. I'm covering, uh, so I'm measuring the, the rights that migrant workers are given uh, under labor immigration programs and openness to admitting migrants in uh, 46 countries, in all high-income countries, a population of greater than 2 million. And I'm, I'm focusing, as I said, on labor immigration policy. So I exclude asylum, student, family, and within the EU, I focus on policies for, for admitting non-EU workers because those can be controlled. So I'm excluding, excluding free movement migrants. And I, we can have a discussion about that. And all my labor immigration programs that I look at are assigned a targeted skill level. So I, I try to identify whether they are targeting low-skilled migrants, LS, skilled migrants, high-skilled one, with the first university degree, or high-skilled two. And the year of analysis I'm presenting today is for 2009. Um, I'm looking at 104 labor immigration programs in 46 Countries. If you look at the bottom row here, I'm looking at 17 programs that are specifically designed to attract only low-skilled workers, 46 programs that are designed to attract low-skilled and maybe others, and if you move to the right, um, 15 programs that were designed to attract only high-skilled. Okay, so these abbreviations are quite important uh, when it comes to understanding some of the empirical results. So LS means low-skilled, MS medium-skilled, high-skilled one, high-skilled two, and only high-skilled two means policies designed to only attract um, very high-skilled workers. Okay? So uh, again, I don't want to go into detail of the of measurement. I'm very happy to answer questions on that. Um, but I have 11 indicators to try to measure the openness to admitting migrant workers, and I'm looking at 23 legal rights, uh, benchmarked actually against the 1990 UN uh, Migrant Workers Convention. Because when I had to ask, well, what rights should I be looking at, I looked at the convention and said, what are the key rights in there, or what are some interesting rights, and I'm trying to measure these through my indices. So the indices measure the extent to which migrant workers enjoy um, equality of rights with citizens. And um, both openness and migrant rights indicators range from zero to one. For the openness indicator, the bigger the number, the more open the policy. So the closer you are to one, the more open the program is to admitting migrant workers. And for the migrant rights indicators, again, from zero to one, one means equality of rights, zero means that the right is very restricted. So here are some of the findings, um, and I'm not going to go into detail of all of them, but um, what it shows you basically is that over 90% of labor immigration programs in high-income countries are temporary immigration programs. Um, I mean, there's a big literature about the decline and about the, the, 
the uh, death of temporary migration programs, well, it's, not just, it's just not true. Uh, permanent migration programs, which are defined as programs that give permanent status on arrival, are uh, very small in number, basically limited to the traditional settlement countries, especially um, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. But even among policies that aim to attract only high-skilled migrants, the, the, the majority are temporary. So a lot of people kind of say, oh, temporary migration programs um, fail or, or you know, are unethical. That may well be, but fact is, the great majority of labor immigration into high-income countries is irregulated that way, so I think we need to talk about them. Um, there's very strong evidence, I think, from my research that openness to labor immigration, which is measured on the y-axis here, so at, um, the greater the number, the more open, increases with skill levels. So as you move from the left to the right, you're moving from programs that are focused on admitting low-skilled workers to higher-skilled workers, and uh, it's an upward-sloping curve, so that means there's a positive relationship between the skill level target and openness. So programs that target higher skilled workers are more open to admitting migrants than lower skilled workers. This is not surprising uh, in many ways. We've known this, but it's kind of reassuring that the kind of systematic analysis here confirms that. If you look at how migrant rights are restricted in different <laughs> countries, now this is a spider diagram that shows you migrant rights restrictions in different regions of the world. Uh, the origin, zero, it means that rights are very restricted and the further out the line is to the outer perimeter, one means that the right is not very um, restricted. And I'm looking at different kinds of rights. And again, this confirms what we know already. In that sense, it's reassuring. So the, the innermost circle, this is the place, the region where rights are most restricted, are the Gulf states in the Middle East. Uh, are on, on all dimensions, they're most restrictive in terms of migrant rights, followed by countries in Southeast Asia, including Singapore and Malaysia followed by Europe, the US, and Latin America. Um, what's the relationship between rights and skill level, target skill level? Again, we find fairly strong evidence that the, the, the rights that migrant workers receive critically depend on the skill level that the program is targeting. Higher skilled migrants are given more rights than lower skilled migrants, um, with the exception of political rights. And that is not surprising, because I mean you can have different explanations for what I'm showing you, but I'm arguing, and you might disagree with that, that uh, what drives immigration policy in many countries is basically a cost-benefit approach. And this cost-benefit approach will uh, rationally lead some countries to restrict some migrant rights, especially social rights, but uh, there's, much, there's a much uh, weaker case for restricting civil and political rights. And of course, I'm looking mainly, but not only at liberal democracies that would find it very difficult to restrict civil and political rights. So that's why the line is pretty flat. Finally, uh, what I was most interested in is finding out the relationship between openness and rights. And the only statistically significant relationships that emerge are negative. Uh, so I think there's some evidence of the trade-off between openness and some rights. Remember, I'm not arguing that um, we can expect to find this trade-off to apply to all rights. We can only expect it to apply to rights that create net costs for receiving countries. In, in many cases, it will be in the interest of the receiving country to grant migrants the same level of rights as citizens. For example, you don't want migrant workers to undercut domestic workers in the labor market by making their labor available under reduced rights. There's a very strong case for actually insisting on equal rights in the labor market, with the exception of the free system of employment. But in other cases, there might be reasons why the receiving country might want to restrict. And in fact, we see that in practice. And the book includes various case studies of the US, the, the EU, that show that in practice, we see the trade-off 
operate in when countries design their labor immigration policy. I'll just briefly mention the US. Uh, in the late uh, 1990s, or actually early 1990s, there was quite a lot of concern about the fiscal impact, fiscal effects, fiscal costs of low-skilled immigration. And uh, President Clinton um, created the uh, Jordan Commission in order to look at immigration policy uh, and access to the welfare state. And the commission recommended to Congress that the U.S. reduce the number of migrants it admits, but it meant that it should maintain migrants' access to welfare state, to the welfare state. Congress turned around and did exactly the opposite. It, it, it drastically reduced migrants' access to welfare state, but at the same time, it kept admissions high. It kept numbers high. So I think this policy was kind of uh, talked about in the U.S. as immigration, yes, welfare, no. And I think it's a very good example of the trade-off in practice. And I think we've seen similar policies in lots of different other countries as well. Briefly, to just uh, spend three minutes to conclude, how do you think about this trade-off then? If, if, if we accept that there is this tension between openness to admitting migrant workers and some rights, how should we respond to it? Well, I argue, whatever your normative view is, that it's important to think about migrants and their sending countries. And of course, when you look at what sending countries want, you see that sending countries' immigration policies are typically characterized by two goals. One is to increase the number of labor immigrants, have more migrants going out, especially low-skilled, but at the same time protect migrant workers' rights abroad. But when you see, especially how the major sending countries operate in places like the Gulf, if you look at the policies of the Philippines, Indonesia, Bangladesh, and the Gulf, you will see when push comes to shove, all of them are much more concerned about keeping the flows going than protecting migrant workers' rights. Um, you, you all saw the controversy about Nepali workers in, uh, in World Cup uh, construction sites in Qatar. Well, what happened? Well, Qatar and uh, Nepal gave a joint press conference where the Nepali government said is that, you know, it's just not true. There is no exploitation. Okay? Why? Well, of course, Nepal is very concerned that if it makes too much fuss, that some of these receiving countries will just turn around and say, okay, if you complain too much about rights of your workers, we'll just go to another sending country, which, is, of course, is what has happened in many cases. So the sending countries are very aware of this trade-off, and there are some sending countries that have explicitly rejected equality of rights in receiving countries as a protectionist argument. So many sending countries, when receiving countries say, we will admit your workers, but only if they have the same wages and same rights as our own workers, some sending countries have turned around and say, well, you say, you say this because of protection, but actually, because you want to protect workers, but actually it's protectionism, because you don't want to admit our workers. So I think you have to think about the fact that there's huge inequalities in the world, Migration can raise incomes of workers and make a big difference to sending countries. So I think it's, it's important to take all of this into account. What I argue in the book, this is the normative bit, is that I argue in favor of liberalizing low-skilled labor migration through temporary migration programs that restrict a few specific rights that create net costs for receiving countries and are obstacles to more open admission policies. And again, we can have a discussion of what, what rights restrictions I would find acceptable. But what I would say is a lot of people, of course, have great objections to new temporary migration programs for low-skilled workers and under restricted rights. What I would say is if you object to that, I think you have to convince, you have to make a convincing argument that the realistic alternatives are more desirable. And what are the realistic alternatives to opening up low-skilled migration for temporary migration programs? Well, I would say one alternative is, is exclusion, which means that migrants are not allowed to come in at all. The other alternative is continued irregular migration. So uh, I, I don't think it's realistic to expect high-income countries 
to open up to low-skilled migrants and give them permanent status on arrival with all the rights that come with it. Um, so you might, you, might, you might reject temporary migration programs under restricted rights, but um, I think you have to then convince me that the alternative is more desirable. And I think when you ask sending countries, when you ask migrants themselves, many of them will not find exclusion or illegal migration more desirable. So to conclude, um, to come back to the human rights of migrants, basically what the book argues is that there is a blind spot in, 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 in some narrow-minded human rights-based approaches to migration because they are primarily focused on protecting existing migrants without considering the consequences for the admission of potentially new migrant workers, so workers who are still in low-income countries and who would like to access. Um, so insisting on equality of rights for new migrant workers can come at the price of more restrictive admission policies. Uh, in my experience, most UN agencies have been very reluctant to talk about this. Um, uh, this may change now. We've just had a high-level dialogue on migration development. There was no discussion of this trade-off. I'm hoping there will be more discussion of the tension in the future. I think we need to have open debate between organizations that advocate more migration, such as the World Bank, and organizations that are concerned with equality of rights, such as the ILO. Uh, now, the specific recommendation that the book makes is that after 25 years of 1990 UN Convention, I think it's time for a new approach that is complementary and not uh, replacing the conventions. What I argue is that we should think about creating a list of universal core rights for migrant workers, which are fewer in number than the rights stipulated in the 1990 Convention, but which have a greater chance of being accepted by more immigration countries, including countries that admit very large numbers of migrant workers. So, of course, there's a big debate about what those core rights should be. But I think, uh, as I said, it's hard to deny that the 1990 Convention has failed so far in its primary aim of providing effective protection of migrant workers where they are, in many high-income countries. So I think there's a strong case for a core rights approach. And it might be a somewhat counterintuitive conclusion, but I think when it comes to effectively protecting migrant rights, less is more. Thank you.